0: Good evening, Church. Before we get into the lesson, I just want to take a second and thank you for your willingness to be part of this study and discussion. For the last few weeks, we've been discussing how we deal with racial strife and tensions that exist both in the world and sadly even in the Church. One of the problems is that these conversations themselves sometimes lead to less unity instead of greater unity. Rather than listening to one another, we end up accusing one another or being dismissive of one another. Consequently, because these conversations often end with hurt feelings and regret, we often choose to avoid conversations about race. But that's not healthy either. We've made progress in this area and there's still progress that needs to be made. The only way to do so is to have more conversations and have the right kind of conversations. That's what I hope tonight's discussion will empower us to do, have better conversations. My guest tonight is Melvin Ote, a former federal prosecutor and an associate professor of law at Faulkner University. I was incredibly blessed by this conversation, and I hope you are as well. Okay, well, Brother Ote, thank you so very much for being part of our series. Thank you so much for making time for this conversation. It is wonderful
1: to have you with us today. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be with you. I
0: appreciate all that you do. I appreciate the the wisdom and the light of the gospel that you shine on not only this topic but on every topic that that you address. Um, and And you know, every time i I bring this subject of race and racism up, I, I feel it's almost necessary to acknowledge the fact that some Christians, including me, to some degree, get kind of uncomfortable when this this uh, topic is discussed, and it is an uncomfortable topic but why do you feel like um, it, it's worth preaching about and teaching about and, and writing about? I know I just finished uh, reading the book that you co-authored, and I appreciate all of the work that you, you've you done in speaking to this issue. And so why do you feel like this is something that even though it is uncomfortable, that it's, it's worth talking about?
1: Well, I'll tell you, I don't necessarily enjoy talking about these things. Uh, sometimes it's easier than other times, but You know, if something isn't right or if something needs to be improved, I mean, you can't improve things by ignoring it. And uh, especially in the church. I mean, the fact is, if there's any problem in the church, anything that doesn't uh, that doesn't sort of work the way God would have it to work, then it deserves our attention. And it would be irresponsible of us. It'd be unwise of us to ignore it. If it's not what it should be, because we're not comfortable talking about it, you know, and there have been topics just historically in the church where we've done that, like we don't really want to talk about it. So we ignore it. And of course, we do that uh, at our own peril. And uh, one of the one of the factors that I emphasize for people when you talk about race relations is this idea of unity. Right. If there's anything that disrupts our unity as the body of Christ, it deserves our attention. And I don't think any honest person can say that race relations and racial troubles haven't impacted our unity in the church. And they still do, right? I mean, you don't have to know a whole lot to look around and say, hmm, that's interesting. There's a congregation of people that look one way over here and then half a mile down the road. There's another congregation of people who say they're part of the same church, but they look different. So what's that about? Like, we can all see that. And I just don't feel, it's just in terms of my walk and my responsibility to Christ, I don't feel like I have the option of ignoring things that I know upset my God. So we have to find a way to push through uh, being uncomfortable and talk about the things that are needed for the church.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree more. You know, I was talking with somebody today and, and we were discussing this idea of talking about it too much versus talking about it too little. And, and I think that so often it's not that we talk about it too much and it's not that we talk about it too little, but it's that when we talk about it, we talk about it wrong and we don't talk about it the right way. And, and one of the things that you brought up in a sermon that you did recently uh, was about the word racist and, and how we need to have sort of a, a better vocabulary than just calling everything racist. On the one hand, you know, we have this tendency to call everything that is problematic racist And then on the other hand, we have this tendency to say, well, if I'm not a racist, then I don't have a problem and I don't need to talk about this. So would you talk to to that issue just a little bit and and why we need a a broader and more nuanced vocabulary than, than just the word racist?
1: Well, it's a volatile subject, right? When you start talking about race relations in our context and one of the ways to make sure that the volatile subject is not discussed in an edifying way is to start off on extremes, okay? racist is an extreme term. Now that doesn't mean that it never is the right term, but because it's an extreme, it's not usually the right term, but it's the most extreme term. Um, And so, you know, over the years, you know, I've got a background talking about these things and dealing with these things academically, professionally, and also in the church. And so I've just sort of learned and sort of figured out that you can bring some of the fervor down in the conversation and you can have a more specific and helpful conversation if you avoid extremes when extremes aren't necessary. Okay so I usually I'd say to people the way I introduce this I have like a spectrum in my own mind as to how this works and so I say Everybody has prejudices, right? Everybody has prejudices and prejudices are, they're not, they can be benign. They're not good or bad. I'm prejudiced and that I favor my wife's cooking over other people's cooking. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, prejudices. That's probably a good idea. Well, I don't have a choice in that matter, but (laughs) my wife's a good cook too, but, but I'm just saying it can be benign. Okay. I have a favorite baseball team. And so I'm sort of prejudiced in favor of my favorite baseball team. Um, But then there are biases, you know, and a bias would mean that I would tend to favor certain people or certain things, and it won't necessarily be based on merit. And, uh, you know, obviously you're moving from something that could be benign to something that certainly could be uh, harmful, because if I'm biased in favor of one thing, that means I'm biased against something else. And if that is not based upon merit, you can see how some people could be advantaged in dealing with me and other people could be disadvantaged. Now, they may never know it. OK, but but now we're moving up this pendulum um, and then I'd get to, you know, bigotry. And I would say, OK, now we're talking about something different because just having a bias, you can you can control for biases if you know you have them, if you know that you have a bias you can control for it because it's not necessarily motivated by animus or hatred. It's not that I dislike somebody, but it's like, Hey, I grew up listening to a certain kind of music. And I think that music is the best music and the music that you like is bad music because it's not the music that I like. Right. But when you get to the bigotry, now you're talking about something different. Now you're talking about being intolerant of differences my way is right. If you don't see it the way I see it, you are wrong. You're not as good, okay? And when you get to bigotry, now you're talking about something that I would suggest is necessarily sinful, like that's a sinful state of mind. And when you get to racist, it's even beyond that because racism is based on the idea that some people are inherently superior to other people, not just different, but superior to other people based on immutable characteristics, things that people can't change, okay? So the way that we define race in our context is basically skin color, which isn't the way everybody defines race, but that's the way we do it. And so when you get to racism, what you're saying is you think some people are superior to other people because of the color of their skin. Now, I would say to you, In American history, most of us have enough information to know that was not uncommon, okay, that people thought that some people were superior to other people just based upon the color of their skin. I think we have a lot lesser problem with that today. It's not that we don't have any problem with it. It's a lot lesser problem. But I do think we have problems with bigotry, right, where people just are intolerant. And you can see that in people's conversation. Just if just on Facebook or just in general life, people cannot tolerate the idea that other people have a different set of experiences or a different set of values or a different set of opinions. And that always fractures people. That fractures the church, that fractures society. Like that is always problematic. And so I, you know, in talking with people, I, I just, I just, there's just so few times in life that I would probably identify somebody as a racist. I mean, they'd have to hit like some, they'd have to hit some key words, okay, for me to use that language. But the problem starts way before that. You know, if I'm talking with a Christian and they even are, you know, suggesting that they have certain prejudices about matters of judgment, you know. I'd say, well, man, we gotta be really careful. You know, you're not a racist. If If I throw the word racist out there, the person's gonna recoil, I'm using it incorrectly and they're gonna have like, you know, the most defensive response possible because that word is so loaded. No, no, we don't even want to be prejudiced, right? God tells us that he is no respecter of persons. We, we don't want to be biased against, you know, people from the north or people from the south or people with, you know, uh, an accent or people who, no, we, we, God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't care who we are. He doesn't care what we look like and we shouldn't either. You know, uh, the Bible says there in Acts 10 and 11, Paul is, uh, Peter's talking to Cornelius in his household. He says, and I just know that anybody who, who does the will of God is acceptable with God. That should be our standard. And this prejudices and biases and bigotry, just take racism off the table for a minute. It's those things that make it difficult for us to see things and to treat other people the way God sees things and the way he treats us. So, I just think you know we can we can bring the conversations down a little bit, take a little bit of the heat out of it, make them less inflammatory if we use more specific and careful language. Uh, I think it's more accurate, and I also think it just helps us to to have more productive conversations.
0: yeah, I think that's I think that's incredibly helpful and you know th- it just seems to be indicative of our culture and our society where we are right now that that there's so much extremism on, no matter what the the topic is, not just this topic, but so many different topics, uh, there seems to be so much extreme language and extreme reaction to those to those things. So I think that's incredibly helpful to to help us to better have these conversations. Another thing that that constantly comes up in these topics are, and you even touched on this, is personal experience. And, and sometimes personal experience can be on one side of this issue and, and on the other side, you know, some people may give a personal experience of times where they've experienced being mistreated or, or having people uh, express prejudice or, or bias or uh, bigotry towards them. And other people may say, well, I've never seen that. I've never experienced that. I, 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 I've never had those kinds of experiences. And, and we sometimes use experience to validate or invalidate you know, somebody else's experience, or sometimes we throw out statistics and we say, well, you know, I can't back up your experience with a statistic. Therefore, I don't believe you. I don't accept your experience. So what what part should personal experience or anecdotal uh, type of information play in these kind of conversations?
1: Well, it has to play some part, right? I mean, you mentioned the idea of statistics on the one hand and then anecdotal information on the other. I mean, listen, we all know what you can do with statistics, okay? You can't, you can't sort of survey 500 people and then act like those results represent everybody. I mean, but that's what we do though. We, we talk to a thousand people and we say, oh, this study showed this and so that must be it. Like, come on now, that's, we all know better than that. But statistics are, you know, it's, it's, it gives you some information, okay? Anecdotal information though is information. And when you're dealing with an individual, you have to remember that individuals are not numbers on a sheet of paper. Individuals are not statistics from a study. And so like if I'm having a conversation with somebody and I've had these conversations with brethren sometimes, and they'll try, they'll tell me, Hey, I read this study that says this. I say, okay, do you want to talk to me about the study or would you like to talk to me? Because, I'm 45, I I do have 45 years of experience and nobody asked me about my experience for that study. Um, If you wanna understand my perspective, if you wanna understand my thinking, it seems to me, if you're trying to understand me so that if I need to be corrected, you can help me or if perhaps I can inform you, it seems to me like it'd be better to listen to me than to quote statistics from people who I they just don't have anything to do with me. You know, when I look at the New Testament, you know, sharing the gospel with people is personal. Um, That's whether they're Christians or not Christians. You know, I just don't necessarily see Paul, you know, going to some foreign city and then saying, hey, you know, 13% of you people, you know, are not going to believe the gospel or, you know, 80% of you have never heard the truth. No, you just, here's a person who's sitting here in front of you. And you have a conversation with that person and try to understand that person's background. One of my favorite passages is 1 Corinthians 9. And that's what Paul says he did. You know, he said, if I was dealing with a Jew, I became as a Jew. Well, How did you do that, Paul? I mean, obviously, he had a background in Judaism that allowed him to relate rather easily to people who were sensitive to the law. But then he says, if I was dealing with a Gentile, I became as a Gentile to a person who was without the law, became as one without the law. Wait a minute, how'd you do that, Paul? Because Paul was zealous of the law, he told us that. But obviously he had to spend time with Gentiles and learn that they had different sensitivities and different experiences. And he used that, he used that information to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And uh, so, you know, statistics, Statistics are relevant information. They're just not all of the information. And what I find is you can do you can do this on either side. We sort of weaponize statistics so that they're an excuse not to listen to other people. I already know everything I need to know because I've got a study. They, they talked to 200 people and they gave me some numbers. And so now what you're telling me, if it's not from these, you know, from these statistics, then I don't need to listen because I already know. I mean that's just dishonest. I mean it, it certainly isn't very. Uh, caring but it's also dishonest but then on the other side you know we can pretend that our personal experience is everything and of course that's not true and so I, I try to caution people like hey America's a big place and I've lived all over the country traveled all over the country and everybody in every place doesn't have the same experience so you can't pretend that your experience is the American experience it's not it's not And I I say that to black people, I say that to white people, rich people, poor people, men, women, like your experience is part of it, but it's not the whole thing. And so you have to be willing to absorb all of this information. We study and we read, and so we'll take in the statistics, but we also talk with people. And when we're talking to people, our point is to connect with them, to understand them, to add not only what they say, like the information, but how they feel, the impact of it, all of that becomes part of the information that we use to have a comprehensive view of what's going on. And so you asked me, well, how do you use it? I think you have to use both. And and either can be valid as long as we're understanding the the proper context for how we're using it.
0: Yeah, I think that's incredibly helpful. And I, I think that all of this, whether it's how we talk about Things the extreme language that we use or or listening to people listening to their experiences, and not assuming that our experience speaks for everybody in America or speaks for the other person, I think all of the things that you've touched on can really help us to love each other in the church and to love our neighbor as ourselves, and that's what it's that's what it's all about. so thank you, brother. I appreciate your perspective so very much.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate that you're having the conversations you know we've got to try to have. Um, obviously, we've got to be wise in how we have the conversations, but we need to have them. I mean, we have to be responsible, but but we need to have them because you know the unity of the church is at stake. I mean, there are individual souls at stake because people do have heart problems in these areas, but the unity of the church is at stake. So we have to do the best we can, but we have to do it.
0: Yeah. Amen. Well, thank you for the the work you're doing, and thanks for helping us to to all do it better. I appreciate you, brother.
1: Hey, thank you.
0: I hope you gained as much from that conversation as I did. Before we close out tonight's lesson, I I want us to think about the book of Romans. Romans is an interesting book, and if you read all the way to the end of the book, in chapter 16, Paul lists a bunch of names, and that's usually the section we kind of skip over, but that's actually incredibly important for understanding everything that comes before that. If you look at the names, it's interesting to note, and and many scholars have done so, that it seems like there are various house churches— that are spread throughout Rome. And it seems like based on the ethnicity of the name, based on the root of the name, it, it seems like there are some house churches that are predominantly Jewish, and some house churches that are predominantly Gentile. You may know that shortly before the book of Romans was written, uh, the Emperor Claudius, when he was still alive and when he was in charge, he had exiled all of the Jewish people from Rome. So all of the Jews had been kicked out of Rome. And then after Claudius died, the Jews were able to come back to Rome. And so probably just before Paul wrote this letter, the Ethnic Jews had just come back to Rome and had begun to try to rebuild their lives in Rome and try to work out their life with their brothers and sisters who were Gentiles. Now just imagine what it would be like if everybody that shared your ethnic heritage, if everybody that looked like you or everybody that was related to you ethnically was suddenly driven out of the entire city or out of the state and you had to leave your home. Everything that you had built, uh, your home, your business, your relationships, your social standing, your your wealth, everything you had was suddenly gone. And then later, when you come back to the city, everything is different. It's the same city, but your social standing is, is gone. Your home is gone, your business is gone, your relationships are gone. And I think that's exactly the situation in which the Jews found themselves. So now suddenly these Jewish Christians have come back to the city of Rome and they have lost all of their influence. They have lost all of their social standing. And now they're trying to live life with their Gentile, their Roman, their Greek brothers and sisters in Christ. And even though they're they're both Christians, both those that are ethnically Jewish and those that are ethnically Gentile, those in the church are both Christians But their circumstances and their customs are very, very different. And so when we read the book of Romans, we have to understand that Paul is talking to two groups of people and he's encouraging them to treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. He's encouraging them to love one another as family and understand that their brothers and sisters might have very different customs and might have very different circumstances and perspectives because of their ethnic heritage. Look at Romans chapter 14 and verse one with me. Romans chapter 14 and verse one. It says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. When we read that phrase, weak in faith, we might think, well, maybe they're a new Christian or something like that. But weak in faith means lacking in confidence, lacking in confidence. And specifically here, when we continue reading, we'll see that Paul is talking specifically about those that are ethnically Jewish. They lacked confidence to do things like Eaten certain types of food or not celebrate certain holidays that they had always celebrated. So they, they lacked the confidence to engage in certain kind of practices. But Paul tells them, here's your mandate. In spite of the fact that you have very different circumstances and you have very different perspectives, you have very different customs, welcome each other and not to quarrel over opinions Now, here's the thing about opinions, and it's true for those that were first century Jews and those who were first century Gentiles and those who live in the 21st century, regardless of your ethnic heritage, regardless of your background, regardless of any other thing, you think your opinions are right. I think my opinions are right. We all think our opinions are right. That's why they are our opinions. If we didn't have that opinion, it wouldn't be our opinion. We all think our opinion is correct. And, and, and here's the thing with opinions, is that they're shaped by lots of different things. Our opinions are shaped, yes, by our faith, but they're also shaped by our customs, by our traditions, by our background, by our culture, by our personal experiences. And so when we live life in the church, we have to recognize that I have certain opinions because of where I grew up. I have certain opinions because of my ethnic heritage. I have certain opinions because of my personal experiences. And you do as well. You have certain opinions based on your faith, based on what you know, based on what you've learned, but also based on what you've experienced. And Paul tells those who are ethnically Jewish and those that are ethnically Gentile that because you're one in Christ, you need to welcome each each other and not to quarrel over your opinions. He says in verse two, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person, or the person who's lacking in confidence, eats only vegetables. Now, if you were ethnically Jewish and you had grown up only eating kosher foods, only eating kosher meats, and you were living in a gentile city like Rome, then every meat was suspect. There wasn't a a, a kosher butcher shop. There wasn't a kosher restaurant where you could get meat where you knew it was was clean. And so every meat was suspect. And so a lot of the Jewish people living in gentile communities didn't eat any meat at all. They only ate vegetables. And, And they didn't do this because they were ignorant, They didn't do this because they were dumb. They did this because they lacked the confidence to eat that meat. And Paul says, that's going to be their custom. Your custom may be to eat the meat and not to worry about it. And their custom may be to eat only vegetables. He says in verse 3, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind." Now again, we have to recognize that what Paul is primarily talking about throughout the entire book of Romans is cultural differences customs, differences in custom based on where people come from, how people grew up, what people have experienced. And he's saying it's okay if multiple cultures exist in the church simultaneously. In fact, it's good for multiple cultures to exist in the church simultaneously. He says, some people are going to have one set of opinions and one set of traditions that's gonna include special days that they're gonna observe, and other people, they can't observe those days or they won't observe those days. And other people, they're gonna have certain foods that they eat, and other people won't eat those foods. And that's good. It's good for there to be multiple, multiple cultures that exist in the church simultaneously. What's not good, what's not okay, is to despise one another, or to pass judgment on one another. Now again, I'm not trying to map our situation onto the the customs of the first century because there's not necessarily a one-to-one equivalence, but there is a lot of application to what Paul is saying. Our situation is different, but, but we are trying to bring together people that have various backgrounds, various cultures, various traditions, various opinions. And people's opinions have been shaped by the things they've read in scripture, but also by what they've experienced and how they grew up. And Paul says, it's good. It's good for there to be multiple cultures in the church simultaneously. But what's not good is for you to despise and judge one another. So we have to examine ourselves and say, am I showing bigotry Am I showing prejudice? Am I showing bias based on what someone looks like, based on what someone wears, based on the music that they like, based on this, based on that, based on another thing? Because this is what the church is supposed to look like. Various cultures, various people groups, all coming together into the body of Christ. Skip down to verse 13. He says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never, never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. You and I have to care about the cultural sensitivities of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Regardless of where you come from, regardless of your background, regardless of your opinions, regardless of your culture, You have to care about the cultural sensitivities of your brothers and sisters in Christ. He doesn't single out Jews and say, hey, Jews, you need to be careful of your Gentile brothers. He doesn't single out the Gentiles and say, hey, you need to be careful of your Jewish brothers and sisters. He tells everybody across the board, never put a stumbling block. Never put a hindrance in front of your brother or your sister in Christ. You have to care about their cultural sensitivities. You cannot despise them or judge them because they have a different set of opinions that's based on their heritage and their background and their circumstances. Look at verse 14. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Listen to that again. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, what else might we add to that? If your brother is grieved by what you post on Facebook. If your brother is grieved by what you tweet. If your brother is grieved by what you say, you are no longer walking in love. We have to understand that it is our responsibility, every single one of us. It is our responsibility to do everything we can not to grieve our brothers and sisters. Everyone has a different background. Everyone has a different set of customs and cultures, traditions and opinions and our job is to welcome one another, never to put a hindrance or a roadblock in front of another, and never to grieve our brothers and sisters. It might happen accidentally. It might happen that we accidentally grieve someone, but we must never take the attitude that says, I can do whatever I want to. I can say whatever I want to. I can post whatever I want to, and I don't have to care about how you feel about it. That's not walking in love. Paul says, you must walk in love. Don't destroy your brother or sister by what you eat. And I would say, and I think the modern application would be, don't destroy your brother or sister by what you post. Don't destroy your brother or sister by what you say. If you do, you are no longer walking in love. We have to make it our goal never to grieve our brothers and sisters. Verse 16, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. He says the kingdom of God is about righteousness. That's justice, acting in a way that reflects our covenant relationship with God, and peace and joy. And when you walk this way, you're approved not only by God, but also by other people. We have to care. How will other people see this? How will other people perceive this, especially those who don't share my background, especially those who don't share my opinion, especially those who don't share my culture or my customs? How will they see this? How will they hear this? Will this grieve them or will this? Pursue peace. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the phrase we sometimes uh, talk badly about. We talk about politically correct language and we say, wow, I don't want to be politically correct. Well, I don't want to necessarily be politically correct either, but sometimes what we call, what we pejoratively call politically correct, is just being sensitive and being kind and caring about how might someone else hear what I'm saying. It's not about being PC, politically correct. It's about being PC, peaceful Christians. How about that? We need to be peaceful Christians. He says in verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Pursue what makes for peace. In the first century church, that meant that ethnic Jews need to make it their goal not to grieve their Gentile brothers. It, It meant that ethnic Gentiles needed to not grieve their ethnic Jewish brothers. It means that they needed to not quarrel or judge or despise or offend one another. And in the 21st century, in 21st century Collin County, Texas, or wherever you live, it means the fact that there's going to be people in our church family, not not just that are white and African-American, but from all over the world, different cultures, different groups, different perspectives, different traditions, different opinions, and we need to make it our goal to pursue peace with everyone, which means you need to care how your words and how your actions are perceived by other people so that you are approved not only by God but also by men. You need to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. This was true in first century Rome and it's true in 21st century America. Differences don't have to become divisions. Differences don't have to become divisions. The fact that some people were of the opinion that they shouldn't eat any tainted meat, and other people were of the opinion that they could eat whatever they wanted to, those differences shouldn't become divisions. And the differences that exist in our cultural groups and ethnic groups today in the 21st century, they shouldn't become divisions. It's good for multiple cultural perspectives to exist simultaneously in the church. But the only way that's possible is if we live out what Paul is spelling out right here. Look at chapter 15 and verse 1. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. When Paul says, we who are strong, the Greek word there is dunamis, it's the word from which we get dynamite. He's saying, we who have power, we who have strength, have an obligation to bear with the failings of those who are dunamis, those who do not have power. This is what it looks like to live as Jesus. It means if you have strength, if you have strength, it's your obligation To serve those who don't have strength. If you have power, it's your obligation to serve those who don't have power. If you have confidence, it's your obligation to serve those who don't have confidence, even if it means bearing reproach from those in our community. Verse 4 For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's the goal of this series, to drop our prejudices, to drop our biases, to drop our bigotries, to leverage our strength For the sake of others, to strive to not cause offense, to not grieve one another, to allow others to maintain their own customs and opinions and not force them to adopt ours. To, as Paul says, live in harmony with one another, with one voice, people of every nation, tribe, language, glorifying God, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is all about and I love this phrase that he ends with here, verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. You know, Jesus Jesus had very different customs than yours. Jesus has a very different probably ethnic background than you. Jesus comes from very different traditions than you. Our American way of life in the 21st century is very different than Jesus. But you know what he does with us? He forgives us and he welcomes us into his family. And that's what the family of God is supposed to look like. People from different backgrounds, people from different ethnic groups, people from different nations, people with different languages, people with different customs, people with different traditions, people with different opinions all welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us. That's the way we swim against the cultural currents.